Good morning. My name is Jonathan Schold. I'm one of the elders here at the church at West Creek. Let me begin by asking you a question. What would you do if you knew that you had less than 24 hours to live? It's a sobering question, I know, right? What you would do if you knew your time was short. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to be a downer eight days before Christmas. Um, <laughs> it's just in a certain sense, this scenario is the one that is facing Jesus in the passage we're going to read today. I invite you to take a Bible and turn to John chapter 13. You can find this on page 900 in the Red Church Bibles. And today we'll be in verses 31 to 38. In these verses, it's Thursday night in the upper room. Judas is gone off to betray Jesus. So now it's just Jesus and the 11 remaining disciples. These disciples, these men who are going to become pillars, really, in the early church. What does Jesus want these men to know? Well, let's pick up the text in verse 31. Speaking of Judas Iscariot, it says... When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, John 13... 31 marks the beginning of what is sometimes called Jesus's farewell discourse. His farewell discourse. As you might imagine, it's a series of final instructions and conversations he has with the disciples before he dies. And in these verses, Jesus actually does some of the things that I bet you or I would probably do if we knew our time was running out, right? He encourages his friends He tells them how they should carry on after he's gone. And in one sense, that's really encouraging, right? I mean, Jesus, he's a model of how to face death courageously. He he has these end-of-life conversations, and he faces them with boldness. I find that encouraging. But, you know, even more encouraging are all the ways that Jesus' farewell discourse is actually unlike any other. And that's because Jesus' death is unlike any other. 
And that's because Jesus himself is unlike any other. I think the essence of our passage today is this, and I have this printed for you in the bulletin. I think it's that in Jesus' physical absence, his disciples' love for one another should reflect Jesus' sacrifice to a lost world. Because you see, when Jesus ascends to heaven, he leaves behind a living testament, a living testament about how he died for sinners. And that testament is nothing less than his church and the love within it. Well, in my notes, I wrote down three headings that helped me work through the text. Maybe you'll find them helpful too. Uh, Verses 31 to 33, Jesus gives a commentary, a commentary on his death and where he's going. Verses 34 and 35, Jesus gives a commandment, a commandment to love. And in verses 36 to 38, he gives Peter a clarification, a clarification about where he's going. So a commentary commandment and clarification. First, Jesus' commentary on his death and where he's going. And just a a note, we might find these to be some of the more intense verses in the passage. So Judas has gone out, and Jesus comments, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now that statement has a lot of pieces to it, right? You know, sometimes at Christmas, Jenna and I will uh, work jigsaw puzzles together. And I have to say, I'm, I'm hopeless at them, right? <laughs> so you've got all the pieces, you're trying to figure out how they go together, you're not really sure, and uh, you don't know how they fit. And if it weren't for that picture on the front of the box, I'd have no idea, right? <laughs> and here in verse 31, we've got all these pieces. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And now he says that he's now glorified. And he says, now God is glorified in him. How do these pieces fit? Well, let's work with them a little, shall we? First, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Now that title, Son of Man, it does refer to Jesus' humanity, right? But it also refers to his divinity. If we had time, we'd turn to a place like Daniel chapter 7. And there we'd see how Daniel has this vision of one like a son of man. And the son of man comes before God, the Ancient of Days, and he receives a kingdom, an everlasting dominion, that people should serve him forever. And it's a glorious piece of the puzzle. But it's not the whole picture. Because we have to remember in John that whenever Jesus talks about being glorified, he's almost always talking about his death. Right? You have to take my word on that for now. But Jesus being glorified means Jesus dying. And now with Judas gone to betray him, in one sense, Jesus is now as good as glorified with the wheels in motion. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Verse 31. But no, it's not just Jesus who's glorified. Right? Because if we look at verse 32, he describes his glory almost kind of like a circle. The Son of Man is glorified. God is glorified in him. And God glorifies the Son of Man in himself. Does that make your head spin? Like it makes my head spin? 
Just wait until we get to John chapter 14 when Jesus tells Philip, Philip, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? It seems what Jesus is saying is that there's some sort of a mutual indwelling of Father and Son. The one is in the other, the other's in the one. And in light of that, right, it, it does make sense that the Father would be glorified in the Son and the Son in the Father. But, you know, I actually think there's another piece of the puzzle here. And I think we find that puzzle piece in Isaiah 49 that we read a little earlier. Remember, in Isaiah, there's this servant of the Lord, right? And he's supposed to turn the hearts of Israel back to their God. But the servant says, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing trying to turn these people back. But yet he keeps trusting in God. And it is to this servant that God says, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Do you hear Jesus echoing that language? You see, Jesus is that servant in whom God is glorified. See, this is the picture on the front of the Bible puzzle box, so to speak. That God is glorified in Jesus, who spends his strength bringing people back to God. Except, see, Jesus doesn't just spend his strength. Jesus spends his dying breath bringing people back to God. See, the Bible says, by nature, we're actually not God's friends. We're actually rebels against him because of our sin. And our only hope is that God would appoint a servant who would bring us sinners back to him. And now here's Jesus. We sang earlier, he's God of God, light of light. Yet he becomes man and lives a perfect life before God on our behalf. And then on the cross, he dies like a rebel, also on our behalf. And the reason the Son of Man inherits an eternal kingdom and people is because these are people he's bought with his own blood. This is the picture on the front of the box. And now, maybe you've heard this before and you're wondering, what does this have to do with me, right? Well, let's look at the first words here in verse 33. Little children. Little children. Jesus is overseeing the Passover feast. In that culture, this was a fatherly role. Um, so even though his disciples are grown men, he calls them little children, speaking warmly like, like a dying father. Did you ever sing that song in Sunday school, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world? Um, when I was a kid, I figured it meant like Jesus loved kids 10 and under or something like that. <laughs> Like, if you can eat free at Bob Evans, then maybe you qualify. <laughs> I was wrong, of course. Um, do you know that Jesus invites you and me to be his little children, too? Oh, isn't that cute, Pastor? Right? Pastor, maybe you should be downstairs teaching the preschoolers. Sing, Jesus loves little children with them, right? But, right, this is the adult service. You're telling us to be little children. Well, you know, Jesus once said to these same grown men, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child 
shall not enter it. Those are stern words. If you're a parent, I'm, I'm sure I don't have to tell you how helpless small, little, little children are, right? Maybe you're thinking, hmm, I have some adult children too. Um, hopefully your adult children aren't quite so helpless, but seriously, the smallest children, they're so helpless, right? And Jesus knows that before holy God, his sinful disciples are helpless. They need to rely on Jesus completely for salvation. Can I ask you, have you come to Jesus like that? Not trying to dress yourself in your own respectability, but coming to Jesus like an infant, naked, looking to Jesus to clothe you in actually his own righteousness. It takes humility, doesn't it? But it's the only way to get to where Jesus has gone, which is into the presence of God. Now, verse 33, Jesus tells his little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, a bit of backstory here, if we would take the time to turn back to John chapter 7, verse 33, we'd see Jesus say something very similar to a group of his Jewish opponents. And there he says to them that I am going to him who sent me, right? Meaning ultimately Jesus is going to the Father. So here it seems Jesus is saying, I am going to the Father and you'll seek me, but you cannot come. Well, when do the disciples seek Jesus, and, and why can't they come? Well, remember the ascension in Acts 1, right? Jesus ascends into heaven, and the disciples, right, looking around, and then, and then the angels say, why are you guys standing around looking into heaven? This Jesus will come back the same way he went. See, the disciples sought him, but couldn't find him. And, you know, at least one reason that they couldn't follow him right then was because Jesus had a job for them to do on earth. Verse 34, Jesus gives his disciples a new commandment. A new commandment. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, is that a new commandment? I mean... Like in Leviticus 19, didn't God say, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? Well, it does say that in Leviticus 19. Jesus even quotes it at one point, saying that it's actually the second greatest commandment, after that we love God with our whole heart and mind and strength. So this commandment to love, it's not completely new, but it is new if, if for nothing else than for how Jesus qualifies it, right? See, the disciples aren't just supposed to love one another, they're supposed to love one another how? What does it say in the text? Just as Jesus loved them. I wonder, are you a little bit intimidated by this commandment? Like I am. I mean, you hear the word commandment, right? And, and maybe it just immediately rubs you the wrong way. You know, maybe you think of the Ten Commandments. Right? And, and how high of a standard that was. And this new commandment is 
even higher, right? Because we know how Jesus loved the disciples. First, he washed their feet, right? He dealt with their foot odor, as unpleasant as that was. And then, then he laid down his life for them. Now that is a high, high bar. Can I just say, I think being a little intimidated here is actually appropriate for us because it reminds us how serious this commandment is. But you know, also, I think the more that we look at this commandment and dig into it, we will see that Jesus giving us this commandment is actually a gift, a gift of pure grace. Because Jesus doesn't need us to love, but he still invites us to love. The first thing to note about this command is who he gives it to, right? And note, it's not given to the world. He's talking to his disciples. And he tells his disciples who it is they're supposed to love. And it's one another. And you're thinking, wait a minute, aren't they supposed to love everyone? Like, supposed to love the poor, even supposed to love their enemies, right? Well, yes, of course. But right now, Jesus is focused on the love between the disciples. And that's because the disciples' mutual love has a very specific purpose. See, the disciples' love is not just for their own benefit. Although, of course, when the disciples love each other, they will benefit from it. But here, the beneficiaries of their love for each other is actually the world. Jesus says, by their love, all people will know that they're his disciples. Now, why, why would anyone care about that? Well, presumably, it's so that the world might become his disciples too. It's the Great Commission, isn't it? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, of course, love is not the whole deal here. The disciples, they still need to have faith in Christ. And when the disciples share the gospel, they still need to use words. But maybe the point here is that for the onlooking world, sometimes actions speak louder than words. Uh, you know, right, right down the road from where I live, there is a steakhouse. And this steakhouse, just like any other restaurant in the world, they have a sign out front. Um, that sign never brought me inside. But you know what finally did? They, they have a chimney, and the smoke from their wood grill comes up out of the chimney, blows right down Main Street. <laughs> and when I smelled that smoke, oh, I thought, I have to try this. <laughs> so I did, and it was worth it. Friends, the non-Christians around us might not care about our statement of faith, but they just might notice the wafting aroma of our love. The world catches a whiff and they think, that, that's beautiful. I mean, I don't quite understand how or why, but I, I want that. You know, it's no secret that sometimes life feels like a puzzle, right? Why did I get that call from the doctor with that diagnosis? Why is it I go to work every day and, you know, I'm so successful, I'm making a lot of money, I'm surrounded by friends, but I feel so empty inside. 
Life feels like a puzzle. And the people in the world, they're trying desperately somehow to pick up the broken pieces of their lives, trying somehow to fit them back together any way they can, but no matter how they try, those pieces just won't fit. But see, Jesus, he's so kind, isn't he? He's given the world a picture on the front of the box. Because in the church, they're supposed to see a picture of a man who was broken, that they might be made whole. Now, my fellow church members, let me ask us this. When the world looks at us, do they see that picture? Do they see a picture of the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve? You know, if you are not a Christian and you're visiting us here today, can I tell you what it is that I hope you'll find here? I hope you find people praying together. I hope you find people bearing one another's burdens, as we sang earlier, rejoicing with the happy and mourning with those who mourn. And though you wouldn't know it, I hope you find people who used to be at odds with one another now taking the initiative to reconcile. Not, not because they forgot what so-and-so said or did. No, but because they've been empowered to forgive by the God who has forgiven them. I hope you find wealthy people associating with those who have less. I hope you find people of different generations mingling. I hope you find engineers talking to people in the arts and married people and single people sharing their struggles. I hope you find, dare I say it, Republicans <laughs> making lunch plans with Democrats. Sound a little crazy in this world we live in? None of it makes any sense unless what unifies us is not our age or our income or profession, personality type, or political party. Only if what unites us is the Savior who died for us. You know, Sunday morning is a beautiful time of fellowship, but it's over so fast, isn't it? So my Christian friends, what can we do to magnify this love so that all might know that we're his disciples? I think about the funerals our church has held recently. I think about how non-Christians in attendance, I hope, I hope we're able to see our love in those events, our love in tears and memories shared, in food, in gospel words of encouragement. How can we show love like that even in our everyday life? You know, a while back I was invited to a meal at one of your homes and the people invited were mostly people from the church, although the hosts had invited a few people who I happened to know were not Christians. And I thought, what a great idea. Because how is the world ever going to see our love unless worlds collide, so to speak, right? What about this? Um, you know, the Browns are playing the Bears today at 1 o'clock. And if we don't just have a members meeting, that might make you miss kickoff. I don't know, maybe you show up late to Buffalo Wild Wings, right? And the, the regular crowd says, hey, why are you late? And you say, oh, sorry. You know, actually, my church had a members meeting today. You go to church. 
You're a member? Why? And then maybe you get a chance to tell them that unlike the Browns, who are not going to win at all this season, <laughs> you're actually part of a team captained by a man who can never lose, right? Let me just say here, I do not claim to have all the answers myself about how the church is supposed to best love one another in such a way that the rest of the world can see it. You know, I'm just one member of the body of Christ. But I bet in your own conversations, maybe even after the service, I bet you can come up with ideas that I would never think of. Just one more example before we move on. You know, in the last month, we've been served by pastors from uh, two different churches, not our church. Uh, these guys who have filled the pulpit for us when we had a need. Now, do we understand these guys did not have to come and preach for us? They have their own churches. But I take it, the reason that they came to preach for us was because it was an expression of their love for the wider body of Christ. It makes me think, how can we display our love to Christians even who don't attend West Creek? Don't get me wrong, I love this church. But the reason I love West Creek is because it's a subset of Jesus' universal church, the one for which he bled and died. And when we remember that, I bet we start to think about this new commandment, not just as love within West Creek, but actually love that spreads out because it cannot be contained. You know, in one sense, the new commandment is profoundly humbling because we remember Jesus, who is God Almighty, he does not need our love. Yet in an act of pure grace, he invites it. And when we love one another with the world watching, well, this is a hands-on opportunity to meditate on what matters most, Christ and him crucified. A new commandment that we love one another. Then Peter raises his hand real quick and says, Lord, where are you going? Uh, um, Peter, did you hear what we were just talking about, right? This new commandment to love, right? And here you are, like, going three verses back and asking, where are you going? <laughs> we see it's not completely out of the, the blue, right? He's going back to verse 33, but it certainly is an interruption, right? Peter's not really in step with Jesus right now. I mean, we might say, you know, God himself has been giving him this commandment to love. Shouldn't Peter be saying, Lord, do you have further instructions how we should be following in this regard? But no, instead, Peter wants clarification on where Jesus is going. Clarification. Now, maybe Peter is just a little overwhelmed here. You know, with all this talk of Jesus leaving, maybe he just doesn't have the bandwidth to really process what's going on. But at any rate, do you see what a good, kind teacher Jesus is? Jesus doesn't lose his temper at Peter. He doesn't even say, Peter, I'm sorry, we don't have time to cover this again. Even though he could have said that. But generous Jesus 
He answers Peter's question. You know, what an encouragement when you and I are slow to understand and believe all that Jesus has said. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. He is not irritable or resentful. If we are his disciples, let us imitate his patience as we love one another. So Jesus answers the question, and he gives a little more information than he did earlier. He tells Peter, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And if you think about it, that's a really interesting verse. Because we know after the resurrection in John chapter 21, Jesus is going to tell Peter that when Peter's old, Peter is going to stretch out his hands and he's going to be led to a death by which he will glorify God. So here in verse 36, when Jesus says, you can't follow me now, but you will follow afterward, it's almost like a word of assurance for Peter in one sense. A hard word to be sure. Peter, you're going to follow me. Not yet, but you will. And when you do, it's going to be a martyr's death. Assurance. And Peter understands, though, doesn't he, that somehow, wherever Jesus is going, death is part of the equation. Because, see, he's not really comforted by what Jesus says. Look at how he responds in verse 37. Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter might not quite know where Jesus is going, but wherever it is, he's going to, even if it means death. But, of course, Jesus is not so impressed. Because Jesus, he's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows Peter is going to deny him three times before the day is done. And this happens in John 18. But maybe our question is, how does this happen? I mean, Peter, who's so bold for Jesus, how does he end up doing this awful, awful thing and deny his best friend and Lord? Well, friends, I think there are two ways that we could read verse 38, I think. When Peter says, Lord, I will lay down my life for you, we might hear Jesus as saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, Peter, you big chicken, right? Will you really lay down your life for me? But, you know, I don't think that's the right emphasis. I think this is what Jesus says. Peter, Will you lay down your life for me? Peter, dear Peter, you've got it backwards. I am going to lay down my life for you. And Peter, until you understand what that means, Peter, until you understand the only meaningful way you could ever die for me is if I first die for you, Peter, until that sinks in, you'll never die for me. And friends, I dare say the same thing is true for you and me today. You know, we've talked about a big vision for love today. And maybe we're thinking, yeah, I want to do something for the church. I want to do something for Jesus. Okay, 
That's good. But remember, Christianity is not first and foremost about doing things for Jesus. Christianity is first and foremost about what Jesus has already done for us. And you know, if we would forget that, well then we could actually be in danger of of denying Jesus like Peter does. Now, of course, uh, Peter denied Jesus directly, you know, when he says, uh, I don't know the man. That's a direct denial. But maybe another way to deny Jesus, this might be a little more subtle, could actually be to deny Jesus' bride, his bride, the church. Now, maybe I'm preaching to the choir here, because after all, it's Sunday morning and here we are. Um, but, you know, I just want to make sure we really feel the weight of what we read earlier in Romans, where Paul says, let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Again, that is a high high bar. And maybe you're thinking, look, pastor, I know, I know I'm supposed to love the church. And believe me, I have tried. I've reached out. I've made myself vulnerable. But I've been snubbed and shot down so many times. I can barely bring myself to come anymore. My friends, I hear you. But when the church lets you down, where are you supposed to look? You know, a few months back in March, I was at a wedding. And uh, when they play Here Comes the Bride, right, where does everyone look? They look to the bride. But when the bride of Christ, the church, lets you down, where do you look? You look to the groom. You only ever look to the groom for the source of your love. When the church lets you down, you look to the groom. And I don't know, what if maybe you feel like, in some way, shape, or form, maybe you've let the church down? I don't know. What do you do then? It's the same answer. You look to the groom. Because he's the one who forgives. He's the one who's the author and perfecter of our faith. Are you looking to him every day, every hour, looking to Jesus and remembering what he's done for you? You know, I started by asking what you would do if you knew your time on earth was running short. And you know, of course, our time on earth is running short. You might have months, it could be decades, but you know, I once knew a, pre a preacher who was very fond of saying, actually every Sunday, man knows not his hour. You don't know when your hour is. So the only logical thing to do is bow before Jesus now and confess him as your Lord and Savior. One more piece of food for thought. You know, Jesus is not the only one in the Bible who gives a farewell discourse. Jacob had one in Genesis. Uh, Moses has one. One of the things that Moses did before he died 
was he appointed a successor. He picks Joshua, and Joshua's going to succeed him as the leader of Israel. But Jesus, Jesus does not appoint a successor. Do you ever think about that? Jesus doesn't appoint a successor because no one can succeed him. And he continues leading his church today from the right hand of the Father. My friends, Jesus will not fail you. You know, hypothetically, Steve and I, we might fail you at some point, some way, somehow. I pray we don't. But Jesus never, ever fails his little children. So come to him, even today, like a little child, and keep looking to his love as the source and standard of your own. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are just that, that you are our Father, not just as individuals, but collectively. Our Father, what a great commandment Jesus has given us that we should love one another. But we confess the strength to follow that command could never come from us. So Father, we pray in the words of one of the saints of old, God, give us the grace to do what you command and then command whatever you will. Because God, if you give us the grace, we confess that we can do whatever you ask of us by the power of him who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, be pleased to glorify your name even in this church and in the love we'll show for you and for each other even this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.